Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. Welcome to Conversations with CEI. I'm Marguerite Urban, and I'll be your host today. I'm an infectious disease physician at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York, and I'm also the director of the New York State Clinical Education Initiative's Sexual Health Center of Excellence. Today, we're going to be talking a bit more about syphilis in New York State. I'm joined by two guests. First is Rachel Hart Malloy. She is the director of the Office of Sexual Health and Epidemiology at the New York State Department of Health AIDS Institute. She provides oversight of sexual health programming, policy, surveillance, and research through the lens of sexual health promotion and equity. Dr. Hart Malloy has worked in the field of public health for over 15 years with a focus on STIs or sexually transmitted infections, HIV and hepatitis C, and epidemiology, surveillance, evaluation, policy, and programming. Second is Wilson Miranda. He is the head of surveillance and special projects within the Office of Sexual Health and Epidemiology, and he is responsible for oversight of statewide STI surveillance and research, partner services-related surveillance collaborations, and system enhancements and efficiencies. Dr. Miranda has worked in the public health field for over 18 years with a focus on communicable diseases, including TB, HIV, and sexually transmitted infections. I'd like to jump right in and talk about our topic today, which is really focusing on syphilis in New York State, and particularly on congenital syphilis. Since you're both with the state's health department, I'd like to help our listeners really understand how clinicians out in the field and the Department of Health can collaborate and interact to try to tackle this difficult problem. Can you tell us a bit about what is the Office of Sexual Health and Epidemiology, or OSHI, as I know you call it? What is that office really responsible for? The core functions of the Office of Sexual Health and Epidemiology have longstanding been part of the AIDS Institute and the New York State Department of Health. Over time, we've really shifted from what we wanted to do with STIs, from controlling STIs to preventing STIs, to really shifting to this sexual health focus and a sexual health model. In 2019, following several years of trying to transition from a disease focus to a sexual health model focus, the office was developed and established and created so that sexual health would be more of a basis throughout the AIDS Institute and hopefully beyond the AIDS Institute and more broadly in the Department of Health. So what we do is we have two main units that really feed what the other does. Dr. Wilson Miranda, who's with me, oversees the STI Surveillance and Special Projects Unit, and his amazing team are responsible for reportable, nationally notifiable STIs, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. They run analytics. They look for upticks. They try to get as much information out in a a digestible fashion. And they're also the stewards of disease intervention specialist data as well. So we have a programming side that lives outside of our office. And that programming side offers a variety of services to individuals who are newly diagnosed with an STI in New York State, including HIV. Wilson's unit oversees the data for that program and provides quality assurance, quality control, and ongoing feedback for that program. All of that information feeds to the other side of the house, which is education, research, policy, programming, and administration. 
This has been the area of largest growth since the office was established in 2019, really growing our education team. That includes getting brochures out there, making our website, putting sexual health campaigns out there, and really getting the terminology that we see as driving what we do out there into the community and with clinicians, leading some research. And also the programming aspect has really been brought up in focus, including some of the work that we do with you, CEI, like our congenital syphilis prevention program. So we try to inform legislation from a data-driven perspective. So everything really feeds one another. We try to lead education to communities that appear to be disproportionately impacted, which we gather from the data side of the house. You bring up the data, which is so important. And as a clinician out in the field, we often see the data two, three years later. So it's a little hard to know real time what's happening. And particularly with syphilis, and as you sort of alluded to the fact that one of our projects is working on a congenital syphilis prevention program, we're really interested in knowing what's happening real time. And I know anecdotally what happens in my practice, but not the pattern. Could you give us a sneak peek? Can you tell us anything current? Are we bending the curve at all with all of our efforts with syphilis? The short answer is no, we're not yet bending the curve. Actually, syphilis has become a challenge. We are very much on the precipice of a public health crisis, both nationally and within the state. So just to rattle off a few statistics, between 2020 and 2021, the number of cases nationally just exploded. In 2020, there were about 133,000 diagnoses of syphilis. In 2021, 176,000. So that's a huge increase. And that was national. In New York State, we also experienced a similar kind of an increase. And a lot of this also, in some way, was contributed by the pandemic. Traditionally, syphilis, for the longest time, had been seen more among males than females. But lately, both nationally and in New York State, we're seeing that the ratio of male to female actually come down, meaning that there are more females now getting infected and diagnosed with syphilis, more females in childbearing age who are also getting diagnosed, and sometimes delivering infants with congenital syphilis. We look at the entire state. So we have several counties in the state, all with varying capacities and capabilities of public health response and ability to respond, depending on their size and their funding and their capacity to respond. And again, depending on where you live in the state, you could see a lot more cases. In fact, you could also be affected by new and emerging public health threats, like the most recent being pox, or formerly known as monkeypox. And all of these take away from the different efforts that have to be expended to tackle public health and STIs. From our perspective, we try to make the data available in a timely fashion and manner as we can. There are restrictions to that because we have to ensure that whatever we put out there is correct, has been vetted, has been followed through, also to kind of balance that with making it timely. So internally, what we do is heat mapping, wherein we look at all of the counts, we compare it over historical trends, and we determine if there are hotspots occurring in different counties in the state. And then we try to notify or find out if counties are themselves noticing these increases? And if they are working with their providers, is there a true increase happening? Are there special screenings or testings that the counties are doing? 
at certain times of year. So we have to look at all of these things before we make this information publicly available. And on top of that, we realize that with COVID, there has been so many kind of alerts and advisories put out that we have to try to prevent providers from getting burnt out with all of these notifications. And we have to balance that with their time and their ability to be able to see patients and do timely treatment and diagnoses of that. So we have to keep all of these things in mind. So even though our annual surveillance report might see a lag of a year or two, when it comes to times where we see increases or outbreaks, we are quick to respond and put those information out into the public sphere. But whether it is through the health commerce system or through our website or through different public health reporting streams that can help providers know what is going on in their community. And additionally, through partnering with your group, Dr. Urban, through CEI, we are able to also let providers know what trends are occurring and if there are new updates and treatment approaches that CDC has put out. Would you want individual providers who feel they're seeing a trend, would you advise them to contact you or contact their local health department? The best approach is to first contact your local health department. The way it works in the state is the local health department is the first point of contact. They're the ones who decide how to respond, and then they bring us in. While we do work hand-in-glove with local health departments, they are best able to know what is the situation on the ground. Having said that, I don't want to dissuade providers from reaching out to us. There have been providers who have reached out to us and asked us if this is something that is going on and what our understanding of this is. And we work always in concert with providing a joint response with local health departments as well. So yes, always welcome, but the best approach is to first work with your local health department. The piece that I would add is that we do often rely on clinicians and partner services staff who are often the first to really see a concerning trend. Because by the time the data come to the state health department, everything is categorized and we're not seeing individuals. We treat our data as individuals, but we're not directly in front of the individuals. So oftentimes we do hear from the field and confirm in the data. And then we go vice versa also. I also wanted to add the data lag because that is a pain point for both Dr. Miranda and I. And I can share we are taking steps to increase the transparency in data sharing, and we're trying to reduce that lag, not necessarily with the surveillance report, but with a different product that we will happily share with you once we are ready to roll it out. But we do have some things in the work with getting data out faster for providers and the community. I think I want to pivot a little bit and talk specifically about syphilis a little more. You alluded to the rise nationally and in New York State, and particularly the rise among those who could become pregnant and the rise in actually cases of congenital syphilis. And what we've seen in our practice is that trend, definitely. We've seen anecdotally, I think, a trend toward younger individuals. I mean, syphilis was typically seen in older individuals compared to, say, gonorrhea or chlamydia. And We've seen several teenage-level cases of syphilis, and we've also seen the trend that's been described, at least at the national level, among those who use drugs 
or in a sexual network where there's drug use somewhere within the sexual network. And that seems to be particular risk. I was curious if you would say that that is true across the state and if you have any sense of why that is. Dr. Miranda and I have a better sense of what is occurring in New York State outside of New York City, as New York City is fabulous partner, but a separate reporting jurisdiction. We are seeing those overlaps in the data as well, transactional sex in particular. We are seeing an increased reporting of drug use-related behaviors. We don't know if that is because there's an actual increase in those behaviors, if there's an increase in an individual's likelihood of reporting those behaviors, or we're getting better at asking the questions. If anything, we do know that the percentage reporting these behaviors is high. So regardless of if it's increasing or not, we're not sure, but it is a high proportion specifically among females. I usually give the most hated answer of all as an epidemiologist, which is it depends. It depends on several factors, and many of those factors are local factors as well. So depending on where you live, which part of the state or the county you live, the age group of persons acquiring syphilis or being diagnosed with syphilis will vary. In the past, it's always been heavily skewed towards younger individuals. But lately, we've been seeing that the trends are moving. And when I say younger individuals, I mean like teens, those who are under the college age. But lately, what we've been noticing nationally and slowly as well in New York State, it's starting to move more towards college-aged individuals and those in their mid-30s especially with these diagnoses. And we don't know if that is part of the changing social and sexual trends of persons either engaging in sexual activities later now, moving away from their teen years. And that remains to be seen. Further, there's also an uptake in senior citizens being diagnosed now with STIs and syphilis and all of that. So while we look at data in a macro level, we look at data like across the board, Sometimes you have to like fine-tune that microscope to see what's happening in individual counties in the state. And the other thing is that there are also now persons who are assigned sex at birth female who are delaying pregnancy as well and going into their later years of having pregnancy. So that is also something we're noticing as well, is that along with persons who are getting diagnosed later in life, they're also getting pregnant later in their life. And in some cases, there are persons who do have psychosocial factors that affect their access to care and having a timely diagnosis or even having prenatal care and all of that. So many of these factors come into play when it comes to when persons get diagnosed. So let's tackle a little bit what programs and what methods we can use to try to bring syphilis down. We've been here before with rising rates. Actually, when I started my career just as I was coming out of residency, that was sort of one of the peak years when syphilis was rising. So we did control it then, or it went down on its own, I guess, either one. So what are your thoughts on that? Our office in particular has really focused on syphilis and congenital syphilis. That's not to say we're ignoring the other nationally notifiable STIs, but we have really made a concerted effort to try to focus heavily on what we can do to combat the increases of syphilis and in particular congenital syphilis. One aspect which I don't know how to translate into clinical practice is really a sexual health approach. 
is having the language, the gender inclusive language to talk to somebody from a sex positive perspective. There's no shame or stigma associated with an STI. And that can come from a clinician. I've had many experiences with clinicians that couldn't talk to me about sex. And I am sure many clinicians are not comfortable with that conversation. So one takeaway really is becoming comfortable talking about sex and viewing sex in a positive manner. So that's one aspect that we do promote the sexual health approach and the five P's to a sexual history taking. There's actually a sixth P that the American Sexual Health Association supports, which I think is really wonderful. And that sixth one is about pleasure. So that shift in paradigm from a disease control to a sexual health model is is something that we promote. We are also looking at five interventions that we are trying to tackle syphilis and congenital syphilis. So one is that is disease intervention and partner services activities that assist people who are diagnosed with an STI and their partners. We are also working with you on a congenital syphilis prevention program in which there is the availability of a real-time clinical support for somebody, a pregnant person diagnosed with syphilis. Clinician can directly call the call line and get support in how to provide care for that individual. We also just convened for the first time ever a congenital syphilis elimination strategic planning group. We are thrilled about this endeavor. This was an open call for individuals to join a strategic planning group with the charge of developing a congenital syphilis elimination framework, including action plans and steps. This was all volunteer. It was all folks outside of the New York State Department of Health. And we have clinicians, we have executive members, we have community members. So we have a wide range of individuals supporting this effort. So far, we have had two meetings. We're about to have our third. And it's a really exciting aspect to see what this group is going to come up with. We can look inside within the AIDS Institute and come up with all of the steps we think might be helpful. But it's folks in the field that are with the patients and doing the work, whether it be a community-based organization or a healthcare provider that can really tell the state what we need to be doing. So that's a huge effort that we're undertaking. We have a couple of community-based grants that consist of programs and services to meet the needs of communities, especially those who have a high likelihood of contracting an STI. And as I shared before, we are embarking on doing more social media campaigns to educate the community and providers, raising awareness and sharing the health information for the needs of the community and trying to make that as diverse as possible to meet individuals where they are, trying to have some focus groups to make sure that we're messaging to different audiences in the right way using different other social media campaigns or awareness campaigns and educational outreach to different communities as well is critical. One of the things that we like to also emphasize is that there are groups that are bearing a disproportionate burden of STIs and specifically also syphilis. Like, for example, Black, non-Hispanic Americans, American Indians or indigenous populations and all of that compared to their white peers. What we're doing is we're spreading the awareness that these groups are disproportionately affected. But that does not mean that providers should only focus on these individuals when they come in for testing. We believe in a comprehensive sexual health approach and a comprehensive approach to testing and screening. So all persons 
and any visit should be asked about their sexual health and should be offered sexual health screening if they haven't had one recently. We've kind of alluded to the CEI a little bit in our conversation. And so for those listening who might not be familiar with that, that's the New York State Clinical Education Initiative. And there are four centers within that that focus on different topics. And one of those is the Sexual Health Center. And of course, I'm the director of that. And as part of that, we have a call line that you alluded to where clinicians call with questions related to anything about sexual health but often it ends up being related to syphilis. And I can't tell you how many times I've had a call where someone says, this is the first case of syphilis I've ever seen. I've been practicing for 30 years. And that is particularly true of people taking care of individuals who are born female. As you mentioned earlier, you know the syphilis outbreak, or if we call it epidemic of some years back, was almost largely among those who were male. So there's a big proportion of clinicians who are was just not part of their practice. That's a real awareness deficit. And similarly, just recently, we had a case of a, a woman who delivered an infant who needed to be treated for a possible congenital syphilis. And the patient had received all sorts of prenatal care and the test was ordered. And through some snafu in the lab, was not done. And then the patient didn't follow up because she thought syphilis had been eliminated many years ago. So it was really a very unfortunate situation where her understanding of where we are with STIs right now was just incorrect. So those awareness campaigns, I think, really are critical beyond kind of all the other educational efforts and screening efforts, et cetera, that we're doing. I was feeling sort of hopeful, actually, about syphilis. We've put so much effort into it. And from an education perspective, our group alone has been kind of around the state doing education. But now it seems like it's always two steps forward, one step back. So now we have another problem, and that's the benzathine penicillin shortage, which has come to light nationally probably in the last, what, four to six weeks, where it's really become fairly prominent. And kind of acute that we're really worried that we could run out of benzathine penicillin. And as you know, that's the only drug that can be used in pregnancy. I appreciate your statement of two steps forward and one step back. And to say this is far from ideal is such a beyond an, an understatement. And it's devastating to think that we can run out of a supply to treat syphilis. It doesn't seem like that could happen in 2023. So this is something that we have been following at the state. We've been talking to our CDC partners. We've been speaking to other jurisdictions. We are also working on a health advisory that hopefully should go out soon, alerting providers if they have not yet heard about the supply chain issue and about the shortage and encouraging providers to inventory their stockpile and if needed to reserve bicillin for the treatment of pregnant patients with syphilis and then using an alternative regimen for non-pregnant persons. I think this is another great example of to circle back to Dr. Urban's earlier question about putting timely information out. 
So one of the things we do is that we have periodic regular calls with local health departments. And during that, we inform them of what's going on, what trends we're seeing, so that they themselves, when they, during their interaction with providers, can make the providers alert of that. Additionally, we use this as a feedback loop so that we can find out what problems they're having so that we can immediately start investigating it ourselves, immediately take it back to CDC and see what is going on. And this bicycle shortage was something that we learned about earlier this year, and we immediately reached out to our CDC partners. And also, thanks to you, Dr. Urban, and to your echo sessions and all of that, some of the information you fed us back was also helpful, and that actually was the impetus for CDC to accelerate their information sharing that Bicelin was in shortage. So we've continued to monitor this, and we've continued to share this out. Now, having said that, the shortage is real, which means that we have to now resort to recommending that doxycycline be the treatment that is offered to non-pregnant persons if there's a shortage of penicillin and is being reserved for pregnant persons. Now, depending on the staging of syphilis, that doxycycline will have to be taken for either from two weeks to a month, depending on the staging. And we all know very well that one shot of penicillin is, or three shots of penicillin is better than having to take a pill twice a day for two weeks to four weeks. And then, you know, having to bring the person back to do follow-up. But that's now critical. That has become very critical that if providers do offer doxycycline as the treatment of choice, given the shortage of bicillin, that we encourage those providers to bring back that person who they treated post-doxy after a certain period of time to, again, to measure their titer to ensure that there is an appropriate response to that. And then take the recommended treatment follow-up or approach to determine what are the next steps that needed to be done if the person is not considered to be adequately treated. Well, maybe we don't want to end on a negative, though. So maybe we could talk about one step forward. So before we got on today, we were discussing the recent change in New York State regulations about testing for syphilis during pregnancy. I would be thrilled to talk about that, Dr. Urban. So in the most recent budget, For New York State, a new law was approved. This new law will go into effect May 3rd of 2024. And it additionally requires third trimester screening for pregnant persons. This is in addition to the already required screening at a first prenatal visit and the regulatory requirement for testing at delivery. So in essence, by May of next year, there will be a requirement for testing pregnant persons at least three times throughout their pregnancy. And I know, Dr. Urban, that sometimes in practice, it could be recommended to do more than that. But at minimum, we now have a requirement for three times during pregnancy. The rationale for this additional screening is that we have seen in the data and heard from providers that pregnant persons are acquiring syphilis during their pregnancy. And so it's not enough to screen at the first prenatal visit, and it's too late to screen at delivery because there's no ability to prevent transmission to the infant. So we're very optimistic that this new addition will increase awareness because we will do what we can to educate providers and individuals about this new requirement. 
So there's that increase of awareness, hopefully, sharing it as well why this is such an important law that has been passed, but hopefully identifying syphilis among pregnant persons, getting timely treatment for that pregnant person and their partners, and education for their partners as well, ensuring the health and well-being of that pregnant person and their infant. So we are very excited for this decision that New York State has led. This was a requirement in New York City since 2019. So again, this is a a great endeavor for a requirement outside of New York City so that we are in all in one accord. New York State was the first state in the country to eliminate perinatal HIV, mother-to-child transmission. And we have taken definite, a lot of concrete steps, and we're hoping that we also become one of the first states in the country to meet this elimination of congenital syphilis, mother-to-child transmission, and then that we are able to maintain this every year. We're not there yet, but we envision that this is a new arrow in our quiver to attack congenital syphilis and, and reduce the numbers. Is there anything either of you would like to say in closing that you would hope any listeners know about? New York State or your Office of Sexual Health and Epidemiology? I don't want to sound hokey in my response, but we really want to do right by New York State residents. We have a mission and a vision for our office, and the vision is to see a sexually healthy New York State. We define sexual health adapted from the American Sexual Health Association as the ability to embrace and enjoy one's sexuality throughout one's lifetime. All of this discussion about syphilis and congenital syphilis feeds that vision. And so all the work we're doing is really driven by wanting to see a sexually healthy New York state. I would wholly echo that. We're living in interesting times. There are pathogens that are emerging with drug resistance. There are public health challenges. There are new diseases that are coming on the forefront. And then We have the old world diseases of syphilis that we also have to tackle. And our primary responsibility is chiefly to educate. That's the primary way in which you can hope to make a big dent and eliminate sexually transmitted infections. And if we normalize people's understanding of healthy sexual actions and behaviors, we can surely see syphilis and even congenital syphilis disappear someday. But that takes time and effort, and we're doing it every single day. We thank you for coming on and and talking with us today in our conversations with CEI. And we thank you for your efforts and your work. It's important work. I was going to say the same. Margie, we couldn't do what we do without working collaboratively with you and your team. You really are our strongest collaborator. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.